This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Usim, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome, everybody. Leadership in Action. That is us. We're Sirius XM's business radio powered by the Wharton School, where we're located. I'm your host, Mike Yusim. I'm the director of the Center for Leadership and Change and the faculty director for the McNulty Leadership Program. I'm in the studio with our very own Anne Greenholm, who is the deputy director of the McNulty Leadership Program. And Anne, before we really get going, just to a state of you. How are you doing? I'm great, Mike. You're How good. are you? I, I'm good, too. So that, <laughs> yes, it's post-Memorial Day. Yeah. The semester has come to a close. I'm not teaching any summer classes, so we have a moment to really? reflect and then prepare for the new year, which is hot on our heels. I like <laughs> the idea of preparing for the new year, yeah. <clears throat> and it reminds me of one of the topics we're going to be talking about tonight, which is thinking ahead. Oh, boy. <laughs> so, and just to spend a, yeah. literally a minute on okay. how we think about the long term, we, of course, always think about the long We should be thinking about yeah. the long term, but I think we mm. need to begin with a definition. So give it a shot, if you would. For you, what, what is long-term thinking in your family? <laughs> or professionally. Take take it either way. All right. How about I'll do family. Okay. Let's, Let me let's, do family. Right, I, come, I come from a family of late <clears throat> bloomers, Mike. Late bloomers. That, that's long term. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we get to so, we're going a couple yeah, years later a, than others. That's fine. A father uh, who married at 39 and yeah. a mother 32. And I was born when they were 40 and 33. So at the time, at the time, that was considered quite geriatric. Not not today, of course. Not today, but at the time, at the time. And so they they took a long view that there were possibilities. And my father, as you know, lived almost to 103. Well, so he he, he <laughs> so had reason to have a long view. He had reason to have a long view. So now, I have, but let me be quick to say I do not take anything for granted. So I'm very grateful for the time I have, whatever that time is. I think I like the point because it may be summed <laughs> up by one of our guests tonight that we gotta uh, we got to get through the short term, but we got to think about the long term. That's right. It's an and, not an or. Exactly. We okay on that? <laughs> yeah. All How right. about you, Mike? Do uh, you think long term? Oh, uh, do I ever. I'm, 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 I'm two weeks in advance now. I'm, I'm, I'm up that far. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so you're impressed. I am impressed. Okay, good. Just to nail that one down. <laughs> exactly. We, we'll come back to that, but i got a quick... Other warm-up question. All right. Uh, <clears throat> I actually know your neighborhood. I often run through y- it. Yes. Uh, I know where you're located there. Mm-hmm. Are there any CEOs next door? Ooh, oh, great question, Mike. Um, <laughs> not right next door, but I met yesterday with a CEO of a program that helps schools and university universities run <clears throat> summer programs. And his name is Steve Robertson of the JKCP company. Yeah. And CEO is one of those very general terms we often associate it with running a big company like General Motors. But a school has a CEO. Yes. A neighborhood association has a CEO. That's true. A cause will have a CEO. So we're going to be talking uh, maybe about uh, your friend there and more generally about the people who are just like us who are actually CEOs as well. The CEO (laughs) next door. And I'm going to say a word or two about our two guests tonight. Let me begin with the second hour. It's really about how, indeed, some, not all, chief executive officers, especially of publicly traded companies, seem to be able to not only meet short-term demands, quarterly Mm -hmm. returns, all that kind of thing, but they can reach out a year, three years, sometimes even five or ten. So it's Mm -hmm. going to be Rodney Zemmel. A senior partner at McKinsey is co-authored a new book called Go Long. It's about that topic. In the immediate hour, though, here we go. We have <laughs> in our studio with us no less right. than Elena Botello, and she has written a book with Kim Powell called The CEO Next Door, <laughs> subtitled great. based on a breakthrough study of over 2,600 leaders. Elena, great to have you in the studio. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here with both of you. Thank you. And Elena, we tend to begin on a more kind of a, a personal terrain. If you could just take us back to your high school days, 
and help us understand how you got from there to where you are today. So your kind of personal story, your professional story. Yes, absolutely. Well, first of all, my high school days took place in the country that no longer exists. Whoa, not, so many, be, not many of us can say myself. that. <laughs> right, exactly. I'm quite, quite archaic here. Um, I grew up in uh, what was then known as the Soviet Union. And actually, ironically, at the age of 14, I had this epiphany that I wanted to be a psychologist. Um, now, if you're growing up in Soviet Russia, being a psychologist is not a job. And my family huh. believed in everyone having real jobs that, like, pay a living, you can make a living, it's a secure thing. As you might imagine, it was more of a method of prosecution back then. So psychology didn't exactly connect to kind of how my family at the time saw what a good job would look like. So what did they, to to fill that blank in, what did they propose that you might become if not a psychologist? Well, they didn't, they probably Mm. knew me better than proposing. Okay, that was going to (laughs) backfire. Don't become an engineer. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, Well, just to give you a feeling, um, so I Mm. grew up in a family of mathematicians and physicists, Mm. and so my sadly form of teenage rebellion was to go study languages and literature. So it's, I know it says a lot about how how maybe boring and black and white my life was back at the time. That's the first time that's ever happened, I'm sure. But but really, they of 14, I noticed that my friend's parents were coming to me for advice huh. and that I really felt kind of good to give mm-hmm. advice. Um, yeah. and, and I felt, more importantly, it felt good to actually help somebody. Um, and so that's where I think, I suppose that's where the psychology idea came. Yeah, great. So wow. you pursued it at the university or was not even offered? Well, so um, what do you do when you need a real job and you're interested in helping people? Um, I went into teaching. So I went to Moscow State Pedagogical University to basically become, with the intention of become becoming a teacher of Russian language and literature, oh, which, great. as you could imagine, really helped me tremendously in my career in this yeah. country. Okay, oh, but, but maybe uh, in some surprising ways. Yeah, but, but, yeah, very important at the time. So did you become U.S. term here certified? So I went for, in back then in Russia, you mm-hmm. went to the university for five years. I completed three years, and then my mom had this crazy idea that I should go to the States. So Where did that come and from? Then the, my father was in, was living in the states at that yeah. point, and you know it was an interesting time in the country during during perestroika. The fam- the country was opening up. There was a very very narrow window when Russians starting to, started to let people out of the country, mm-hmm. and the U.S. was still letting Russians into <laughs> the country. country. Yeah. <laughs> so somehow oh. somehow I was fortunate enough to. Um, Make it through that. So did you, did you transfer to a school, to a university here? Well, gee, first I came here. Um, <clears throat> one memory comes to mind <clears throat> at the airport. So back in the 90s, when you left Russia, you didn't really know if you'd ever be able to go back or see your family. And so it was a pretty traumatic experience. Mm-hmm. And so picture this dark, dark, dark Sheremetyevo airport, worse of a dungeon than <laughs> SHDH, right? <laughs> um, and then and my whole family is there. And then my grandmother looks at me and goes, well... So we're talking about you going to the States and maybe going to college and maybe getting married because that's what girls did back then. Um, But, like, do you think you can learn English? (laughs) And I thought, well, I guess so. And so that which tells you about how prepared I was (laughs) for for that part of the journey. Oh. Uh, Elena, I do note that you grew up in your early years in Azerbaijan. So before we get into the years since you came to the States... Tell us a little bit about your neighborhood, where you lived in Azerbaijan. What was life like? <laughs> well, first of all, Mike, you're a brave man for even venturing to pronounce that word. Okay. <laughs> you know, Did I come I, close? <laughs> no, you absolutely mastered it. <laughs> and that comes from someone who got a high grade in my business law class in undergrad because the professor was afraid to pronounce my last name. <laughs> oh, so. <okay. laughs> so I never got yeah. called on. Oh, boy. Well, so back then, growing up in Baku was a really fabulous experience, actually, for me. Uh, it was a beautiful, beautiful place. We uh, I could walk to the Caspian Sea from my house. Um, When you were, when as you grow up, and opportunities for education and employment became more relevant, it wasn't as great of a place. But for growing up, it was amazing. It was full of roses in the summer. It was beautiful. The food is amazing, and I look forward to visiting this summer. But not a great place for for a young woman. And then just a last background question: As you come into the states, um, I presume you entered a university. I know you did an MBA with us, and then. Well, first I became a babysitter. Then I <laughs> yeah. became a phone answering representative, customer service representative, and right. both of those were before I learned English. And then I got to go to university. <laughs> that kind of forced your hand, though. You had to learn English. And how did you learn English? 
uh, by talking mostly, just, uh, mostly, and community college initially. Was there a favorite mm-hmm. television program that helped you learn English? Oh gosh, that's. Mm-hmm. I think I actually didn't watch that much television, but I mostly just talked to people when I could. Yeah, I noticed. Um, being in a bar really facilitated English learning. <laughs> it was a lot easier to learn the language uninhibited. That's great. So uh, let me turn it over to Anne, and we'll, uh, yeah. in a few minutes, come to the book and your work with Mackenzie. Yeah. Well, I might just ask where you did uh, study when you, got, when you entered into university here. Well, so um, I chose my university uh, for the weather because since uh-huh. I was coming from Moscow and was really homesick, so I picked a school that I could afford uh, in the snow belt of New York. Uh, so I went to State University of New York in Binghamton. Oh, very good. Where it rains or snows about 364 days a year. Very good. <laughs> so it felt like home. I like that. It felt like yeah. home. And so I actually started out, it was it was quite a process for me to choose what to major in. The one thing that helped mm. was that I knew I needed to send money back home. And so that narrowed the field pretty quickly. And my defining criteria became uh, well, it needs to be something that'll get me a job. Okay. And then I thought, well, what is it? I'm in America. I could certainly graduate in about five minutes if I wanted to continue to on the teaching path. But I'm in a whole new world. Mm-hmm. I wanted to explore it. And so the one thing that we didn't have back at home that America clearly figured out is the economy, money. And so I started out as an economics major. And then I went to the first job fair. And in broken English, I asked people at the job fair, where were the jobs at SUNY Binghamton for economics majors, and why were all the jobs for accounting degrees? Uh, And after I got a lot of strange looks, I basically became an accounting major by the end of that day. (laughs) Oh, very good. You are adaptive. (laughs) Right. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So, So you studied accounting. I did, yeah, uh, which most people who know me today will not believe, actually. <laughs> Nobody will want yeah. me to balance their checkbook or, you know, divide up the check at the end of the meal. Okay, although we have a wonderful accounting professor here, Brian Boucher, who opens class by saying, accounting is the language, is the language? of business. It is the language of business, absolutely. <laughs> I was totally sold. right, totally Absolutely. Right. I even TA'd accounting when I was here. <laughs> Very impressive. <laughs> so, uh... Elena, let's take it a little bit more forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, you did have a stint at McKinsey. I did. And I think for our listeners, if you wouldn't just mind saying a couple words about what McKinsey does. I think we all know it's a strategy consulting firm worldwide. Uh, I assume you were with one of the U.S. offices, maybe getting back to Eastern Europe from time to time. So just say a bit about McKinsey, the company, and then a little bit about what you did there. Well, first of all, the only way I could transition from accounting to McKinsey was Wharton. Okay. So that was an so important... Was, so it was post-MBA. So it was post-MBA, exactly. Um, and um, McKinsey was a terrific experience. So I, I, I cannot picture doing what I do today if I hadn't spent the five years at McKinsey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and McKinsey mm-hmm. felt, coming out of Wharton, like a terrific challenge. It felt like the toughest thing you could do. <laughs> and so I was tempted to try it out. Um, and so at McKinsey, I, I did strategy anywhere from... So I, I was based in the New York office. I did work in Silicon Valley. I graduated in 99. So that was the the hot time for uh, e-commerce. So I did quite a bit of technology e-commerce work. I was in London doing some media work. I actually, one of my... Uh, most interesting and intricate McKinsey projects was actually helping McKinsey redesign how they recruit talent, mm. which is the life life lifeline of yeah, the business sure. there. Um, and so that's that's been my experience there. Lana, to anticipate, we're going in just a couple minutes to your book, The CEO Next Door. Uh, even if you're a uh, a new associate of McKinsey, you're often in touch or working with people at the most senior levels, including chief executives. My guess is you met more than a few in those five years with uh, McKinsey. What did you learn about them that you had not anticipated? You read about them. You went through many cases about CEOs and what they do. We see them on CNBC. But uh, <laughs> what what kind of caught your attention for something unexpected? You know, it's interesting. So I have to tell you, at McKinsey, CEOs were still scary. Even though <laughs> CEOs became more normal, so as in... They were human beings that yeah. we interacted with, that like, made decisions based on our information. Like they might even live next door. They <laughs> might even live next door. Although well, yeah. I wanted to come back to that one, actually, we will. We will. Um, to, the, to the next door point. But they were still pretty scary. Uh, one of my 
maybe silly insights about CEOs back from those days is that I realized that you don't want powerful people to be confused by how you're presenting information. Hmm. Because hmm. when powerful people get confused, it causes a lot of stress for everyone around them. And so some of the insights from McKinsey were around how do you actually communicate with somebody that gets so much information thrown at them and do it in a way that makes it easy for them to make decisions? Clearly hmm. and briefly. <laughs> how, how does that sound? So it, Spot on. Uh, there it is. So. Spot on. Elena. And with emotional resonance. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> I'm going to remind listeners uh, that they are listening. You are listening. We, uh, to Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. I'm your host here tonight, Mike Yassim. I'm with Ann Greenhall, my good friend and colleague. And we're talking just now with Elena Botello, co-author of a best-selling book, the CEO Next Door, and then listen to the subtitle, The Four Behaviors That Transform Ordinary People into World-Class Leaders. Oh, very good. I might pick up one thread. Uh, at McKinsey, you said you took a hard look at how McKinsey recruited talent. So can you say a little bit about the before and the after? Because McKinsey has a wonderful reputation and, and always has with respect to recruiting talent. Well, that was probably kind of one connection to the work I do today, which oh. is I help the most successful leaders in business do something that everyone thinks they're already mastered, right? Helping McKinsey hmm. on recruiting means facing thousands of people who are used to being experts and yeah. are quite opinionated on the one thing they all think they're masters of. And so yeah. that was a fascinating change management experience. <laughs> no. It was it was absolutely fascinating. Okay. Um, so where but the problem begin? too yeah. was largely from I might be wrong, but I'm never in doubt, right? Okay. So uh, a system that looked very deliberate to anyone outside of McKinsey, but actually when you checked, back-checked for validity and predictive validity of our entering methodologies could be improved. To the future or to the kind of – if that was the, the from, mm -hmm. the two mm -hmm. was much more analytical, much better calibrated, and ultimately I think helped McKinsey make better decisions and – it was not easy. <laughs> oh, boy. So what was your first step then? And I'm sure, am I right in just getting people to just stop, pause, and double-check their assumptions about what it is that they think they do so well? Yeah, McKinsey runs on data and influence, right? So it's not a command and control environment. Nobody, even the CEO of McKinsey, uh, Kevin Sneeder now, um, I'm not even sure who was the CEO back then, mm -hmm. doesn't tell McKinsey partners what to do. And so this is a firm where you really need to influence and champion change. And so data is really important for that. Mm -hmm. um, and so people analytics is, is how we did it, right? So we yeah. actually demonstrated how the old process was really not nearly as reliable as everybody assumed it was, and then mm -hmm. developed a very fact-based way of assessing candidates in the future. Okay. So, and then lots of conversations. <laughs> Lots of conversations. So, for example, um, the data revealed that maybe a candidate had been placed in a particular position but didn't go long or was there only for short term. Was it about turnover? Well, you know what it was mainly about? It was actually in some of the things that will parlay into the book, right? Uh, there are certain people that just look more attractive in interviews, right? People who come from all the schools that we all know well, yeah. that have the pedigree, extroverts often will do better in an interview, charismatic folks, people who present themselves well, right? And it's just helping break down the behavioral aspects of what is it that a successful McKinsey consultant does and develop a set of methodologies for interviewing and assessing candidates that took some of the bias out of the picture mm -hmm. and also helped normalize, right? Because what you had McKinsey, as probably you know, practices case study as part mm -hmm. of their interviewing method. Right. And you can mm -hmm. have one partner doing a case study that was 10 times more difficult and complex than somebody else. And so mm -hmm. just helping helping get things a little bit more normalized. Oh, that's great. Structure. Elena, before we move on uh, to your book, we're coming to it in just a couple of minutes. Just to pick out a couple of clients, obviously not by name of individual or the company, but Talk for a minute about maybe your best client and then talk about a really difficult client. What was it like to work with a great client? How did you adapt? How did you provide value, added, add value to that client and so on? Back in the McKinsey days or now? Your McKinsey days, yeah. Back in the McKinsey days. And then we'll come days. to now in just a few minutes. You know, I would say the common denominator for a great client for me personally 
is the client who can use your advice well to make good decisions. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean actually that they'll always follow your advice, but mm-hmm. it's a client who actually engages mm-hmm. in the right way to get the benefit of your yeah. advice. It's literally that simple. I mean, here's a funny analog. I've known various speechwriters um, over quite some time, and they pretty much describe their profession the same way. They provide material for a senator or a, a leading executive to make a presentation. The material hopefully gets used. It won't be used exactly in the form that was rendered to the individual, but it does inform them. And that. Let's take the other end of the spectrum. Uh, a difficult client. What what defines a, a what did define a difficult well, you know, client? It's funny. So for me, even today, and I think I had less appreciation for that at McKinsey. Actually, the worst client is the one that will use you every single time, but just because they need a rubber stamp or because they need yeah. to check the box. Hmm. It's just a waste of my time, yeah, frankly. Yeah. Uh, it's just it's it that so that's not a good environment for success for the client first and foremost. Yeah. Um, I think that's re- the other the other aspect of it. Uh, again, I encounter probably more frequently now than I would have had the appreciation at McKinsey. Is a client who just cannot move or cannot make decisions, and mm. it takes a really, really, really long time, as in years, for them to make decisions. Mm. I think actually the hard thing at McKinsey for any consultant, so often when folks leave McKinsey, when they leave, they talk about feeling disconnected from the impact. They talk about uh, churning mm-hmm. decks. What I have a much greater appreciation for now, because my client relationships now are 12 years, a decade, is that when you're actually advising someone on something really, really important and fundamental, it may take them five years mm-hmm. to take that advice. And so I think at McKinsey, mm. what's been hard for for kind of a rank-and-file consultant is that when you're coming in for a project, it's actually sometimes harder to see the impact versus if you see a client relationship mm-hmm. over decades, you realize that the impact sometimes takes lots of different takes and inputs. And then you, when you see the client move, it becomes very, very That's rewarding. Mm. So good. So just the way that you <coughs> phrase that, Elena, makes mm. me wonder if in some respects you've come full circle that you're actually using your psychological insight in order to advise and to get people to move. Is that true? Well, so what happened was um, I got married, and my (laughs) husband and I were on the beach in Thailand. And my husband was obviously in love with me, uh, right? I hope he still is. He certainly was back then. And we talked about life after McKinsey, because I came to McKinsey out of Wharton, and I always thought it was going to be a couple of years, and then I enjoyed the work more and more, and I felt like I was having more and more impact. So I was at a five-year point, uh, and I'd, uh, I'd just gotten promoted. And but I somehow felt that, you know, there was going to be a chapter after McKinsey that I wasn't mm-hmm. prepared to be a lifer. And, mm-hmm. and Carlos, in a very endearing way, said, look, you can do anything in the world. You can be CEO. You can go, um, you know, work <laughs> at a private equity firm. You can run the world. Just don't go to and I won't say the company name, but this kind of particular company that's known as just the lifestyle choice. Right. And I remember, you know, it's amazing how being on the beach in Thailand, overlooking the ocean with a couple of good drinks can give you just like amazing perspective (laughs) in life because I had absolute clarity in that moment. I looked at him and I said, you know, honey, actually, if money was no object and time was no object, which both are, let's face it, I would just go and get a PhD in psychology. That was May. uh, That was June. We got married in May. That was June 2004. And I got a call from GH Smart in November 2004. Had that conversation on the beach not happened, I'm not sure I would have even picked up the call because you don't yeah. leave McKinsey to go to some other consulting firm, yeah. right? Oh, boy. So, so yes, Anne, you nailed it. I it was, did. It was in a funny way coming full circle. Okay. And what was so appealing about G Smart at the time? Well, thanks to my husband, I realized that was my life's dream. I just didn't know that job even existed. <laughs> so when they did call me and our founder, Jeff Smart, made the call I thought, really, people pay you to do this kind of work? Because <laughs> I always thought it was a privilege to advise CEOs, but you mean they actually pay for that kind of work? Um, and so I thought, well, um, and it was very funny because nobody I knew, except for one mentor at McKinsey, actually, no, nobody else was supportive of that idea. Uh, and you were starting from, what do you mean? They don't have health insurance? They don't have family leave policy? That's clearly not a job for a first-generation immigrant. Uh, to, well, how are you going to advise CEOs? They're all men. 
like what makes you think that you can play golf? I clearly had no plans to play golf. <laughs> but except thanks to Carlos, I realized that's exactly what I wanted to do. And so that was actually a really simple choice for me. Oh, that's I tortured great. the firm with my diligence on them. Yeah. But lo and behold, I, I literally could not wait to start working. Oh, that's great. Wonderful. <laughs> so, Elena, let me fill in a blank for our listeners. Uh, you are a partner at the leadership advisory firm, GH Smart. You're also founder and co-leader of the CEO Genome Project. We're going to come mm-hmm. back to that. But before the break, we're just a couple of minutes out now. I do want to get us now onto your book, and I'm going to quote uh, directly from it. You say, and this is partly it's why you've got the title, The CEO Next Door. <laughs> These are not people that were in a separate universe or on a separate track. They're people like us. And uh, one of four or five distinguishing factors of the CEOs, a couple thousand you've looked at, is 45%, quoting you directly, of CEO candidates had at least one major career blow-up. That's encouraging. Uh, exactly. That was my reaction. Oh, exactly. Who knows, Anne, where, where I might I know, be going. Still, yeah. We're right on track, yeah. right? So. Not sure if more is better in that right. one, but... Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, Elena, we've got to uh, take a break. We're going to keep going after the, the break with about one minute to go. Um, as you have talked with so many of these people about how their careers sometimes felt like they were being derailed or even ended, what's an example of a blow-up that, that comes to mind that you can, without disclosing the name, just br- briefly describe? Well, actually, on this one, I can fortunately even disclose the name because it's in the book. Uh, and <laughs> oh, <great. laughs> So Andy Silvernail, uh, Andy is a CEO, very successful CEO of a company called IDEX. Uh, it's uh. one of the highest growth companies. He's delivered tremendous returns to the shareholders. And Andy described the perfect storm he faced when he stepped into the CEO role. Mm. And obviously, when we uh. look at careers, failures can happen at any point in time. In the, fir- the first year mm. in the CEO role, Anyone, no matter how successful they've been up until then, always feels particularly in the hot seat. And so Andy talks about an acquisition that he um, championed at the company that I think was about $200 million worth of lost shareholder value. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's, that, that's what he faced as a CEO, and he describes how he went through that experience. So we're going to come back mm. to that, and yeah. uh, certainly Anna, myself, yeah. and I'm sure our listeners are thinking, uh, huge setback, and what... <laughs> What are the steps to come back from a setback? We're going to come back to that after the break. In the meantime, I need to remind everybody to stay with us. We're talking with Elena Botello, co-author of the book we've just referenced, The CEO Next Door. I'm with Ann Greenhall. I'm Mike Yusneem. And you're listening to Leadership in Action here on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. You're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Mike Yuseem, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome back. Leadership in Action, that is us. We are Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by our school, the Wharton School. I'm your host, Mike Yuseem. I'm in the studio with my friend and colleague, Anne Greenhall. And our guest this hour, we've already been in dialogue, but join us even if you haven't been with us so far, is Elena Botello, co-author of a best-selling book, The CEO Next Door, subtitled The Four Behaviors That Transform Ordinary People into World-Class Leaders. And Elena, I'm really intrigued by those four behaviors. (laughs) We we want to know what they are, and then we want to know how we can get some of those. (laughs) So talk about the four behaviors that make the difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. So to make it easy for your listeners to remember, think of the word dare. Mm. So D-A-R-E, dare. So think of it as dare to be great. Yeah, (laughs) that's great. Got it. So D stands for decisiveness. Mm. A stands for adapt proactively. R stands for relentless reliability. Mm. And E stands for engage for impact. That's great. And tell me which one you're curious about, and I can go into uh, Any of them first. Yeah, let's, uh, I'll start. Let's take Engage for Impact. Absolutely. When we look at CEOs, and this is actually ties to another um, kind of piece of our research, which is we compare it at who gets hired into the CEO role mm. and what it takes, the qualities that help you get hired with the qualities that help you perform well. Right. Mm-hmm. So these are the four behaviors that help you perform well. Uh, among them, engage is probably, in a way, least surprising, right? Because surely you cannot, there's no leader without followers, right? Mm-hmm. If people don't want to follow you, it's pretty damn hard to be CEO. Frankly, pretty damn hard to be anyone, effective right. at anything. 
Um, we also found by working with Professor Steve Kaplan at the University of Chicago that actually more likable CEOs or more likable individuals are more likely to be at, get hired. So it actually helps hmm. when you have this, you know, the book broke a lot of stereotypes, right? But one of the stereotypes is this charismatic, extroverted personality. Well, guess what? If your goal is just to get hired, it actually really helps mm-hmm. to be extroverted and charismatic. However, when you look at performance and results you deliver in the role, hmm. there was absolutely no correlation to charisma. There was no correlation to introversion and extroversion. In fact, in our higher performing set of CEOs, so we bucketed CEOs into those who met expectations of the board or investors, those who underperformed, or those who performed above expectation. In the bucket of CEOs who performed above expectation, there were even slightly more introverts. Mm. And what we found mm. is that what looks like inspired charisma to the rest of us, right, often is actually a set of very deliberate practices, routines, and habits that to some of them may come more naturally, but more often than not, they've actually really thought through and practiced very yeah. deliberately. Mm-hmm. And so what we've, um, as we analyzed CEOs who really excelled on this um, Engage for Impact, what we've found is that when you look at how folks get, how leaders get followers, we looked at their motivation. What is it for the purpose of? Mm-hmm. And we found that the most successful CEOs, while they build followership, it's for the sake of delivering results for the business. Mm-hmm. So their ultimate goal is not being liked. Right. Right, mm-hmm. which is what enables them to make tough decisions. And there are plenty of CEOs for whom it's very important to be liked, mm-hmm. but they struggle to deliver results as consistently. Yeah. Because obviously, as both of you know, there's no leadership without making tough decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, we um, also um, worked with Professor Nat Carney at, the, at uh, Cambridge University, uh, who invented this kind of um, niceness curve, what we call mm. the niceness curve, right? <laughs> and so basically where you want to be is right in the middle. So if you're too nice, uh, you will be more likely to get hired, but you're also quite likely to underperform. Mm-hmm. And if you're not nice enough, as soon as yeah. you know, you've delivered, people will be quite eager to get rid of you. And so what you're looking for is, is this healthy space in the middle. That's great. Let me mm. pick one more and yeah. then turn it over to Anne. Back to D-A-R-E. How about relentless? Relentless reliability. Yep. Well, so this one gave us a lot of trouble, actually, because when we, um, when we did the research and we crunched through all this data and we worked with academics, we worked with SAS Institute, we very deliberately didn't have any leading hypotheses. So unlike mm-hmm. McKinsey hypothesis-driven approach, we said, you know what, we will do completely exploratory research because mm-hmm. we wanted to be careful that our biases of what is and isn't good leadership didn't in any way play into the data. And so when the real, and so you know we can all talk about what you might expect to be on that short list of four, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when relentless reliability popped up, we were kind of annoyed, mm. actually, because mm. it just doesn't sound like. I mean, reliability is something you want from your car, <laughs> or from your I don't know, um, from your doctor, perhaps, right? right? Reliability just doesn't sound like an exciting, sexy CEO behavior, right? <laughs> But um, not only did it prove to be very important, it was actually of the four behaviors was the only one that both doubled your chances of getting hired. So you're twice as likely to get hired if you're highly reliable and you're 15 times more likely to be a high performer. Let me take uh, apart the word. So it for turned just out to second. be very powerful. <laughs> and to expand on the concept, I'm going to try kind of a working definition. It's the ability to consistently follow through on tasks, to put all those steps in this uh, that we sometimes call execution out there. You get through it. Uh, you pledge to do something. You do achieve it. So pick up on that. What's, a, what's your working definition? Well, so we, we, we see three components to relentless reliability. The very yeah. first one is mindset. What's interesting about relentlessly reliable leaders is that they're not willing to be accountable. They have a desperate need to be counted on. And you see that very early in their life. Um, <laughs> there's one executive that I came to interview for a CEO position, and he was describing a situation when he was 16 years old on a farm in California. His parents were away, and there was fire. Fire broke out, which happens in California. And so I said to him, I said, so what would you do? And thinking in the back of my mind, he's 16 years old, right? Yeah. 
He said, well, you know, so first I let the horses out of the barn because left to their own devices, they're going to just run away. Then I put the chickens and the pigs in the truck. Uh, then I called my friends to figure out exactly kind of where the fire was headed and all of that. Uh, and then I got into the truck. On the way, I, I called to the insurance company to make sure that, you know, we had all the information we needed. <laughs> and then I drove about 30 miles to, you know, wherever the next the next place was. And then I called my parents and told them everything's fine. But like bad news, mom, dad, bad news is the, the, the farm's on fire. Good news is we'll get covered by insurance. <laughs> and so when you think about a 16 years old, right, you don't need the rest of his career history to know that he's got the most important component, which is the mindset where mm-hmm. he expects to be counted on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we've all been around these leaders, right, mm-hmm. who you, you know, in any situation, again, they're not willing to stand up and be counted. They have a need to take care of others, right? Great. Mm-hmm. Have second and third. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> You're not done, Elena. Yeah. Um, and then so then second piece to relentless reliability is actually not surprisingly uh, it's setting the right expectations to begin mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. Um, there's a story in the book about Scott Clausen. Scott has a Midas touch as a CEO so mm-hmm. every CEO role he's had he's delivered and over delivered to his investors first company he came to head he delivered four times return uh, returns to the investors and Scott described how hard it was when he came into um, one of his CEO roles because he came in and the investors had expectation that this business was generating $40 million of profits, right? And Scott said, you know what? I just, something didn't smell right. And so rather than saluting, and of course, as mm-hmm. a new person just hired into the role, you want to please, you want to deliver on the expectations. He went and actually dug in and came back with the bad news of saying, well, you know what? Actually, good news is the business will produce $40 million EBITDA, but it's nowhere close today. And so they're smart about setting the right set of expectations. On the flip side, mm-hmm. sadly, we're advising an executive now who's an incredibly talented executive who came into a role, inherited a very high set of expectations, mm-hmm. and is failing in the role now because the assumption he made coming in was – well, I got trust entrusted with this opportunity. I wanted to show that I'm worthy. And so I said, yes. In mm-hmm. the back of my mind, I knew it wasn't realistic, but I just Ooh, couldn't, I yeah. couldn't tell mm-hmm. them because then they would think they picked the wrong person. Mm-hmm. And so meeting expectations starts with being careful about the expectations mm-hmm. you take on. And the third. <laughs> <laughs> and the third is re- um, surrounding yourself with the right people uh-huh. because reliable organizations don't exist without having reliable people in them and people in the right roles. Um, and then, yeah. and then I'll throw in another one, which is just the habits and routines. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Mike, uh, enough about me, more about me. <laughs> <laughs> Can I actually in. offer one other thing yes, about please. reliability? <laughs> so here's the interesting <laughs> thing. So of the four behaviors, right? Arguably you could say it's one of the more powerful ones, right? Even though it sounds a little, you know, surprising for a CEO. Uh, we had, we developed, um, a self, very simple self-assessment tool that we oh. put online that we had 11,000 people take of all walks of life from big CEOs to folks just graduating from college and everything in between. Um, and so it was a self-assessment on the four behaviors. Which of the behaviors do you think, um, got the lowest scores? Relentless hmm. reliability. Yes. Hmm. Yeah. So we're all likely to overestimate, like we'll assume we're better drivers than we are. We also assume we're more relentlessly reliable than we are. Hmm. Very good. All right. So, the so if any of the, your listeners are thinking, so when in doubt, what should I work on? This is a good one to start. Yeah. Well, I just so I resonate with your earlier comment about relentless reliability being unglamorous. My very first supervisor, Mike, told me in my performance review, I was dependable, responsible, accountable. Wow. See, that's great. And, and those, I said, th- th- those were good things. Yes. <laughs> those are good well, things. Here's what I said to him. I said, Larry, you, his name was Larry. Larry, you make me sound like a Hoover. You turn her on and she runs. Yeah. Can't we, you know, like, how about it's not creative fun, thinking? Right? It's not how about something right. Right. a little more glamorous? Hey, the on button works. <laughs> and then he said, <laughs> and then he said, and someday if you manage people, you will come to appreciate how important it is to be reliable, accountable, and yeah. dependable. Exactly. Well, here you go. And now we have 2,600 well leaders proven. to prove it. Exactly. exactly. It's funny because at McKinsey, I had one performance review like that, too, when I was complimented on my ability to execute. And I thought, oh, my God, they must think I'm not smart enough. Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Just a doer, not a thinker. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. All right. So now there are two more behaviors, Mike. We have adaptability and also decisiveness. And I might actually start with decisiveness because I've learned a wonderful expression from Mike. 
and that is to decide deliberatively. Oh, and that's, that's uh, great. That's an expression that Mike and his colleague Harbir Singh use in one of their books on strategic leadership. So, and now I'm, I'm dying to hear <laughs> how you way, think about decisiveness. A psychologist formerly at Princeton University, <laughs> Daniel Kahneman. Uh, yes. Very good. So he actually developed that phrase, and it's a great, it is a great phrase as he distinguishes that kind of thinking from more systems intuitive one, thinking. Systems systems two thinking. Yeah, that so he talks about. exactly. So be systemic, think about the future, bring it into the present, take everything into account, trust your gut, but be careful because sometimes your gut's misleading. Exactly. There it is. So how about in your experience looking at CEOs on well, decision-making? Here's the fascinating thing, right? We weren't surprised to say this was an important factor. We were surprised... But what we found about highly decisive CEOs. So what we thought we would find is that they're just they make better decisions. Mm-hmm. They're more accurate. They make fewer mistakes. They may be mm-hmm. more deliberative. Maybe they're more analytical in their decision making. Mm-hmm. What we were shocked to find out is that actually when you look at them up close and personal, they're just more decisive. They're more willing to make a decision. Okay. Um, and we talk about that a lot as we do CEO succession work when we mm-hmm. support large companies in picking their next CEO, right? And they'll talk about the fact that, gosh, you know, these folks are really smart, but they're not willing to make a decision to make that call because when you're at the top, the buck stops with you. And so our big surprise around decision making was the fact that they're not necessarily more accurate, but they're more willing to make a decision. Mm-hmm. Elena, I'm going to remind our listeners yet again that they are tuned in to Leadership in Action. We are talking with you, Elena Battelle, right here in the studio co-author, as you are, of The CEO Next Door, and I'm with Ann Greenhall. I'm Mike Hussein. Helena, with a few minutes uh, yet to go, let's turn now to kind of the next step. After we, let's say, read the book, maybe take one of these assessments, (laughs) and we discover we're a little bit low on reliability or we're less decisive than we ought to be, what's next? How How do we become more decisive, more relentlessly reliable, and so on? Well, so what got us excited about these behaviors is that actually you will find that every one of us has mastered at least some of these behaviors, Mm -hmm. at Mm -hmm. least in some of our domains, Mm -hmm. right? So you may be very decisive when it comes to your personal life, but maybe not as decisive when it comes to picking people on your team or maybe Mm -hmm. the reverse, right? Mm -hmm. And whether we work with very successful CEOs or, you know, I'm working with my kids, right, or talking to my kids. All of us can get better at something, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, we actually spend a lot of time in the book trying to give very practical advice yeah. around how you can learn. But if I had to give you kind of a very short common denominator is I would encourage the readers to, one, kind of take a look in the mirror and mm-hmm. think about where their highs and lows are between those four behaviors. The second thing I would encourage you to do is think about any domain of your life that's really important to you, right? So it could be your job. It could be your family mm-hmm. life. And just ask yourself, if I thought about this outside in, which of these four behaviors is most important in that situation, right? And if you're lucky, by the way, the places where you're really strong at are the same places where mm. <laughs> where it's really mo- they're most important to your success in whatever domain you pick. But if not, then that gives you the first behavior to start with. Yep. Um, one way to improve across the board with these behaviors is look at your highs and lows. So look at where you're already strong. And look at um, some of the mistakes you've made, right? We talked about the importance of making mistakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and really try to tease that apart and, and experiment, set up, set up some experiments. Mm-hmm. So, for example, with decisiveness, a lot of leaders we work with are incredibly decisive when it comes to launching the new product. And completely indecisive when it comes to deciding that you may, the person on your team mm-hmm. who's been tremendously loyal, who's done a terrific job for you for 20 years just isn't going to get you to the next phase yeah. of the growth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's helping, helping them learn from the places where they're already decisive and mm-hmm. translate that into places where they struggle. It's great. i got a quick related mm-hmm. question. Uh, DARE, it's a great acronym to capture these four different qualities. I think implicit in your thinking, and I think it's all through the book, is one won't carry the day. You've got to have all four. It's additive. Correct. Each necessary, none sufficient. And thus, one way to think about leadership is it's, it's a bundle. It's, it's not just one aspect. Charisma will carry you. Charisma exactly. will get you through the day, but not beyond that and so on. It's a portfolio, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah t- exactly. Totally. Well, and we, uh, on the flip side, what we find is that mm-hmm. I'm yet to meet a CEO or any leader or any human being who's equally good at all four, right? Mm-hmm. 
And yeah. so when we think about CEOs and, and at the same time, Mike, you're, you're absolutely right. There are probably plenty of people that we can think of who are incredibly decisive, but they just make wrong decisions half yeah. the time. Mm-hmm. Or somebody who's incredibly adaptable, but just it comes at the expense of reliability. Mm. And so the trick is to be at what we call kind of at bar, at minimum mm-hmm. required uh, level for each of these behaviors. And then realistically, you'll probably spike on one or two. So see if this sounds right. Uh, if you step back, if we talk with people like you or do an inventory on ourselves or maybe a 360 feedback exercise, and we come out, let's say, short this year on being adaptable, we've got to have all four of these features, uh, the behaviors uh, somehow bundled together. But maybe that's a statement this year we ought to work on becoming more flexible, more adaptable, more agile. Next year might be becoming decisive. It's the Ben Franklin rule, right? But he took (laughs) he he wrote a list of virtues, and every week he practiced one virtue. So I think it's a good habit building for anything. It's it's a serial (laughs) self development. Exactly, exactly. Maybe uh, to come a little bit full circle here, Elena, we're talking about the behaviors that are uh, essential portfolio of behaviors for CEOs once in the role, but those behaviors um, may be different than the behaviors that get you to the role. So you talked a little bit earlier about extroversion and charisma may help you achieve the role, but it may not serve you well in the role. Are there other examples of behaviors that may may get you there but not serve you well once once you are in the role of CEO? Well, that's a a really good question, Anne. So we think of these behaviors as lessons from CEOs, right? Mm -hmm that would be applicable to anyone's career success. Mm-hmm. No matter wh- whether you ever aspire to be CEO or you have mm-hmm. no idea what you, who you aspire to be, what we found is that these are the four behaviors that help you excel at work. Or frankly, mm-hmm. you know, we're told even help you excel in other domains of mm-hmm. your life, right? Mm-hmm. And so we very much approach that with the mindset of let's learn from the best and from the most successful leaders and uh, figure out a way for how that can apply to, to anyone, right? But so if you're asking the question of, okay, what it takes to get the job, right, yeah. Yeah. may or may not be the same thing as what it takes to do the job well, right. right? I think the way I would look at this is, so we already talked about likability. I think some of it is understanding your audience and what they're looking for and making sure that you're communicating and mm-hmm. conveying the attributes that you have, mm-hmm. right, that are relevant to your audience. So most, and there's a chapter yeah. in the book about how do you actually you know, seal the deal, right? So how do you actually get the job? Because it's nice to talk about being successful. But again, no matter for what job you're going after, right, you actually need to get the opportunity first. Right. right. And so we talk about the fact that often when we're going for a job opportunity, we're so preoccupied with our own qualifications and how to convey ourselves and how to make sure that our um, strengths come through. Mm-hmm. Whereas actually the right place to start is understanding what the state, the state of mind of your audience. Mm-hmm. And usually anyone making any hiring decision, whether they're hiring a CEO or they're hiring a nanny, having mm-hmm. hired lots of nannies myself, yeah. I can speak to that, uh, or a marketing manager or an mm-hmm. engineer, they're actually looking just to make a safe choice. And so mm-hmm. we talk a lot in the book about how do you make yourself safe? How do you make yourself, how do you convey mm-hmm. yourself being a safe choice for yeah. someone? Elena, we're That's almost great. out of time. I've got a, oh. uh, not quite a final question, but a question to kind of sum up a lot of what you've said tonight and what's, what's in your book. If you sit down with a 25-year-old, they're kind of looking at the life you have led and what you've done. Let's say they would like to be you. And with the, <laughs> with the benefit of hindsight, including a, a, a helpful conversation on the beaches of Thailand, what advice would you have somebody who would really like to become an advisor to those who move the world, whether a company CEO or maybe in politics or beyond. So age 25, looking back on your life, what would you recommend? You know, Mike, can I answer it in two ways? Of course. I I don't know if a 25-year-old would aspire to being an advisor to CEOs, but I think what they might see is that I feel very blessed to be doing what I love to do. Mm. And I think the only advice I have for that is most things that I've been fortunate to be able to do in life, if you had to look at statistical probabilities of me being able to do them, they would the odds were stacked severely against me. And what really helped me is that I actually didn't know that. 
<laughs> it, just like that question that about well, do you think? Advice, yeah. And so my good, my my, it may sound. Uh, <laughs> my advice is that if you have an inkling of what your passion is, just assume it's possible. Just assume it's yeah. possible because in some way, shape, or form, you'll be able to bring it to life. Yep. Um, quick answer to your direct question is listening skills. Mm-hmm. I think what makes CEOs want to take my advice is that they believe I care. Uh, and they believe I can actually hear them. And a lot of my clients have said to me, you know, it's funny because you can articulate what I want and what I'm afraid of better than I can sometimes myself. Um, And so I think learning how to listen to others and have the caring courage, I suppose. (laughs) Fantastic. And final (laughs) shot here. Well, when I hear you talk, Elena, I just have to tell you my view is, but of course I am biased in this regard, so I'll, I'll be forthcoming. But I think your early love of language and literature <laughs> have served you well. Oh, gosh. <laughs> don't you think? Because it's about listening and about reading and about reading the CEO who is right in front of you and interpreting, understanding what bits matter, what bits don't, what's significant, what is important, what isn't. That's a highly literary process. Gosh, I never connected it in that way, Anne. Thank you. I think it's so. Like Very... Steve, I would never compare myself to Steve Jobs, but it's like Steve Jobs studying calligraphy, exactly. right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, and well, let's stay on that. Your, your time in Moscow, your time in Baku, those probably gave you a kind of perspective that Absolutely. helped you do your job now as well. What, what do you think? You know what it gave me? I think, one, it gave me a mindset of being able to see similarities Mm. and find common ground with people that on the surface have very little in common with each other or with me, Mm -hmm. um, which I think has helped me adapt in coming into any new organization or a country. Um, I think it also helped me make sense of that as much as leadership is sense-making for yourself Mm -hmm. and others. Mm I've been trained to make sense with compl- with very imperfect information. Because for years, I came to this country, I remember, you know, for the first few years, I was trying to have a conversation understanding about 20 per- 20% of what was said. After that, coming to McKinsey is a piece of cake. <laughs> <laughs> At least I have yeah. the numbers. So I think yeah. there, probably, there probably are some, yeah. some of those things. And I do think that it maybe another piece that m- clients I work with values that it's taught me that there's always more than one way to look at a problem, mm-hmm. at a situation. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Elena, a final uh, question with it. Literally about six, 60 seconds ago, is there one thing that you have come to appreciate as you've seen CEOs from next door up close that people wouldn't know about? What would you single out? Gosh, they're just much more normal and human. <laughs> they <laughs> are from the, next door. And yeah. they often don't look... Like what we expect. I mean, they're masters of the universe in some domains of their life. But often, if you saw them earlier in life, you would have never guessed who they would become. Great note to end on, Uh, Elena. For more information about you, about your book, how would people learn about both? Well, um, you could find the book on Amazon. So the (laughs) CEO Next Door. Uh, You can also go to the CEONextDoorBook.com as the book website. Um, yep. And there's always ghsmart.com where you can learn everything about me and our firm. <laughs> totally. Uh, so, Elena, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. I really appreciate this conversation. You. Yeah, it was really wonderful to talk with you. Thank you, Anna and Mike. <laughs> All right, everybody, stick around. Uh, the reason for that is after a short break, we're coming back on the air with the co-author of a new book called Go Long. And uh, by the way, that's not about football, but I suppose there's a certain analog end with that. Yes. And so we're going to talk about how some companies, not all, are learning to think about not the quarter ahead, not the year ahead, but four, five, maybe more years out, making tough decisions in that context, going long. It's all about long-term thinking and how they do it. I'm Mike Hussein. I'm here with Ann Greenhall. This is Leadership in Action, business radio powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 